Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And recently, I received a tweet from Twitter user Salvatore Del Noc, aka Nonjuror asking if I would do a breakdown on how analog to digital and digital to analog audio converters work. And that's a great request. Um, it is incredibly technical when you really get down to it. So I'm going to do a very high level view of the concept because otherwise we're going to have to get into the various methodologies that DAC and ADCs work. And uh, it would quickly become like a technical manual. But if people want that, then I can do a subsequent episode and go into more detail. But one of the uh, you know, things about this is it lets us talk about the differences between analog and digital audio and why converters are necessary in the first place. And to open up the eternal argument about whether one is inherently better than the other. Uh, this one goes out to all you audiophiles out there, so get ready to send me angry messages, because no matter what I say, some of y'all are going to get upset. 
Anyway, let's start with what it means to be analog versus digital. Now, when I was a young boy, nobody loved me. I was a poor boy from a poor family. No, hang on. That's no, that's Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. No, when I was a young boy, analog was the standard. Digital did not even enter into my awareness until I was a teenager when compact discs were starting to become popular. They had been around for a while before I was a teenager, but I was not really aware of them because, I I mean, I grew up in rural Georgia. We would get technology a few years behind everybody else. Anyway, I grew up thinking analog essentially meant old and digital meant new. Like, that was sort of the abstract distinction between the two in my head. But the differences are obviously more complicated than that. And we need to understand how sound works, which I know I've covered many, many times, but it's important so that we know how the analog and digital methods of recording and thus reproducing and eventually playing back sound, you know, how they work with relation to the original sound that existed. So sound is, when you really get down to it, vibration or pressure waves. Now, we mostly experience sound by hearing these vibrations travel through the air, but you can also experience this underwater. Sound can move through different media, including solid material. Like, if you put your ear against a table, a really long table, and someone on the other end is tapping very lightly on that table, you'll hear it. And it's not because the sound is traveling effectively through the air, though it is doing a little bit of that too, but that it travels through the table to you. Sound also travels at different speeds through different media. And in fact, stuff like air temperature can affect how quickly sound travels, which is why when we talk about the speed of sound, we technically actually need to be a little more specific than that. So the standard way of describing the speed of sound is to say that it moves at 343 meters per second in dry air at 20 Celsius. That's about 68 Fahrenheit. And if you start changing those parameters, you know, if you introduce, say, a lot of humidity into the air, or you change the air temperature, like it it goes up or it goes down, well, sound will travel at a slightly different speed than at that standard I was talking about. Now, I could get into how the vibrations cause air molecules to move back and forth, creating little changes in air pressure. And it's these pressure waves, these air fluctuation changes that our eardrums pick up and transfer to our inner ears. That's where special nerves pick up these fluctuations in our inner ears. And then our brains process those those nerve signals as sound. But most of this isn't important for the rest of this episode. So instead, let's talk about sound waves. All right. So we can think of a vibration as something in which a particle is moved out of its usual place and then it snaps back to its usual place. And it might do this several times. Uh, Think of a guitar string. If you pluck a guitar string, you're pulling the string out of where it usually sits, and then it snaps back and forth and oscillates around its normal position until it settles down again. So we can describe the number of times that a particle does this as a frequency, you know, or the number of times a string goes from one point all the way across and back to that starting point over the course of a second. So with sound, we usually use the unit hertz to measure frequency. If a particle only did one cycle of vibration per second, if it took a full second for it to go from the, you know, the the one crest to the next crest, 
uh, then it would be one hertz. That would also, by the way, be a frequency that was way too low for us to hear. Typical human hearing has a range of around 20 hertz at the low end to 20,000 hertz or 20 kilohertz, in other words, on the high end. So for stuff vibrating in a cycle that's 20 times a second, all the way up to 20,000 times a second, that's something we could potentially hear. Now, I say potentially because that is typical human hearing. There are people who can hear outside of that range a little bit. And then there are some of us, especially as we get older, who can hear a more narrow range of frequencies. But frequency is just one part of how we describe sound. Uh, We can also describe sound by how loud it is, the volume of sound. So from a physics perspective, we can think of this as how much pressure the sound places upon our eardrums, you know, how dramatic those fluctuations in air pressure are, in other words. Uh, But loudness isn't just down to physics. The way we experience loudness depends not just on that sound pressure itself, but stuff like psychoacoustics. That's how our brains perceive sound in the first place. But now we've got two criteria we can use to assign to any sound, correct? Like we can talk about the frequency of that sound, you know, how frequently that those particles are vibrating. And then we can also talk about the displacement of those particles vibrating or what we might think of as the loudness or volume of that sound. We could then plot a sound wave as a transverse wave on a graph. And we could have the x-axis, you know, the the horizontal axis of this graph representing the passage of time. So on the left side, we might say zero, and we say time increases as you go to the right. The y-axis we could uh, have being displacement, which kind of, you know, amplitude or volume, in other words. And uh, we could then plot all the points where a particular vibrating particle would occupy over a given span of time. If we had a sound of a steady frequency, then we would end up with a wave that would look a lot like a sine or cosine wave. The distance between two consecutive crests of this wave would be the wavelength for that sound. And a sound's wavelength has an inversely proportional relationship with the sound's frequency. So the higher the frequency of sound, the shorter the wavelength will be. So deep bass notes would have sound waves that have much longer wavelengths than very high-pitched, high-frequency notes. Uh, Frequency relates to pitch. There isn't like an easy mathematical way we can kind of relate uh, pitch, by the way. There are easy ways we can relate frequencies, but it gets a little tricky. Anyway, the reason I even talk about plotting sound waves at all is that it makes this easier for us to consider the differences between analog and digital audio recording. Keep in mind, if we plotted that sound wave, that's not that's not the physical sound wave that we've just plotted. That's our description of that sound wave, its frequency and its loudness. Um, the classic sine wave-like depiction of a sound wave shows us that there's a continuous representation of sound across time. It is unbroken. We can plot, uh, you know, even complicated sounds with changes in amplitude and frequency. And the shape of the waves tells us a little bit about the timbre or quality of sound. Now, by quality, I don't mean, oh, this sound is very good quality or this sound is really bad quality. Instead, I'm talking about the elements that differentiate, say, a piano playing middle C uh, from a guitar playing that same note, middle C. Both instruments are producing the same note 
at the same frequency, assuming both instruments are, you know, properly tuned and both of them are using the same pitch tuning, but you would hear a difference in the type of sound between them, right? A piano and a guitar sound different. Otherwise, all instruments would produce exactly the same kind of sound as each other. But, you know, you can tell the difference between a piano and a guitar or a clarinet or a flute or whatever. The timbre is different, even if the instruments are all producing, you know, technically the same frequency, even at the same volume. This leads us to the fact that sound is this continuous thing for us. It isn't happening in discrete units. It's kind of like the difference between jumping into a pool filled filled with water, which is, you know, continuous to us because we can't, you know, experience it down on the molecular level or jumping into a pool that's filled with plastic balls. So to us, sound is kind of like a fluid and analog recording captures that. The analog approach to recording is older than digital. So way, way back in the 19th century, folks like Alexander Graham Bell were trying to figure out how to transmit the human voice across great distances using electricity. And the microphone was one half of what was needed to do this, the loudspeaker being the other half. And the basic way a standard microphone works is to convert sound that continuous, you know, phenomena of pressure wave changes into a varying electric signal, an electric signal that has varying voltage. This is another continuous phenomena, right? It's unbroken. It's it's like another wave. Here's how it works. So inside an analog microphone is a tiny little diaphragm, typically made of very thin plastic, and it behaves in a way similar to how our eardrums work in our ears. So when sound, you know, these pressure waves hit that microphone, it it moves the diaphragm back and forth. And the diaphragm is actually attached to an electromagnet. Uh, A simple microphone could have a permanent magnet inside it and wrapped around this permanent magnet is a little coil of metal wire that connects to the diaphragm. So the diaphragm moves the coil, which then moves along the length of this permanent magnet. That introduces a fluctuating magnetic field, or rather, you know, the effect of a fluctuating magnetic field. The permanent magnet's magnetic field is stable, but moving a coil through a magnetic field, it's the same thing as if you were to fluctuate a magnetic field around a, you know, non-moving coil. You get the same effect. Now, the laws of electromagnetism tell us that if you have a conductive material and it encounters a fluctuating magnetic field, that field will then induce an electric current in the conductive material. So now you've got the microphone producing an electric current. And again, the voltage of this current varies depending upon the sound hitting the microphone. That means the microphone is a type of transducer. That's a device that converts one form of energy, in this case, acoustic pressure, into another form, electric signals. Now, you could send this electric current with varying voltage somewhere to do something else interesting, like you could have it go directly to a loudspeaker for playback. Now, of course, this electric current is really weak. Uh, There are, you know, very small elements in your microphone, right? So it cannot produce an incredibly strong electric current. So typically, you would first pass this electric current through an amplifier, which increases the strength of the signal. I'm not going to go into how amplifiers work. I've talked about it in other episodes, and it would 
mean that this this episode would go like an hour and a half long if I were to to dive into that. The important thing to think of is that amplifiers take incoming weak signals and then push out a stronger version of that same signal, assuming the amplifier is working properly. Then that signal could go to a speaker and you would have the same process that you had with the microphone, only in reverse. The speaker also has a voice coil inside it, a coil of you know conductive uh, metal wire and also a magnet inside the loudspeaker. So the incoming current goes to the wire and we know by the laws of electromagnetism that this means the flowing current through the wire will also produce a magnetic field. I mean, this is how electromagnetism works and that this magnetic field will then pull and push against the magnetic field generated by the permanent magnet that's already inside the speaker. And this in turn creates the force that pushes and pulls the cone inside the speaker that connects to another diaphragm. This is a much larger diaphragm than the one that's on the microphone on the other side, right? Because you've boosted the electric signal, it can then have enough power to move this larger diaphragm. So this larger diaphragm begins to move in and out, and it's pushing and pulling air, and it's just recreating the acoustic pressure waves that were used to go into the microphone and generate that electric signal in the first place. So you've kind of preserved this experience from sound going into a microphone, the microphone as a transducer, transforming that acoustic pressure into an electric current with varying voltage, sending that to an amplifier and then a speaker, which then does the opposite. It's also a transducer. It takes this electric current with varying voltage and converts it back into acoustic pressure, and we get the playback. That's an analog chain from start to finish. Now, if you've got a good quality microphone and a good amplifier and a good speaker, you can transmit sound pretty effectively. And because the whole process is using that continuous and varying signal, it is analogous to the experience of hearing the sound itself. We've transformed the energy from one kind to another, but apart from that, it is an unbroken chain. Now, analog media includes stuff like magnetic tape and vinyl records, which are produced in a, a way where you are transmitting analog signals and they are effectively carved into a surface that then can be picked up with a, uh, a stylus on a turntable and then converted back into an electric signal that then can be sent to speakers. So either way, you are preserving that analog uh, signal. With the magnetic tape, you've got a recording device set up that takes that varying electric signal from the recording and then creates a magnetic field with the the writer, the right head. Uh, and you've got a little electromagnet in this thing. And that magnetic field rearranges particles that are on a strip of plastic tape. That's how cassette tapes work. That's how VHS tapes work. So attached to this strip of plastic that is the actual tape in a tape are these tiny magnetic particles that are bound to that plastic. And by applying the magnetic field to the tape using a tiny electromagnet, you can change the direction that these particles are facing on the tape itself. So this process arranges particles on magnetic tape in a specific way to record that original electric signal you were using. The magnetic particles represent the original signal and that in turn represents the sound that was used to generate the electric signal during the recording process. So when you play a tape back, 
the tape passes underneath an electromagnet at a distance that's close enough that the electromagnet is picking up the magnetic fields of all those tiny particles. And the particles have been arranged in patterns because of that you know, recording process, right? So the fluctuating magnetic field that is created because these particles are now passing by an electromagnet are again reversing that process. The electromagnet starts to generate an electric signal because of that magnetic field and then can go to an amplifier and then go out to speakers. So again, we use a lot of transformational processes to record the sound, right? Because here, in this case, we took pressure waves, vibrations, the sound, went into a microphone, creates an electric current with varying voltage. That electric current then goes to a tape recorder, essentially, that uses magnetic fields to record onto tape. We take that tape, we put that tape into a tape player, and that magnetic record then produces an electric current in our tape player, which goes to an amplifier and then goes to drive speakers and replicate the sound that we recorded in the first place. So again, we transform things multiple times, but the analogous uh, sound process has remained stable. Now, there's a lot in this process that I have not covered. The equipment and methods you use in recording and playback determine whether or not the copy you have is a really like accurate representation of the original sound. Like, does it sound like you were actually there or is the nuance lost? And the same is true for playback. Playback on a really sophisticated system will likely sound better than one that's played on some super cheap stereo. Though... Pretty quickly, you do reach a point where the returns are harder to detect, right? Like where you might listen to something on a good system, and then you might listen to that same thing on what's considered like the highest of high-end systems, and you might not be able to tell a whole lot of difference. But the basics for analog recording and playback are all there. Now, when we come back, we'll talk about the digital approach. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. 
That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Okay, so now we've got an idea of how the analog process of recording and playback works. We transform stuff, but we still have a continuous signal that represents sound, which is, you know, a continuous phenomena. As sound changes, as the pitch and the frequency shifts, or as the volume changes, or as different instruments or voices produce sounds, all those subtle and maybe not so subtle shifts are part of that recording method. It's an unbroken wave. Digital recording uses a different approach. In a way, digital recording is like taking snapshots of what is going on during a recording session. And I've thought of a kind of goofy analogy to sort of explain what I mean. So imagine for a moment that you are in a soundproofed room and you cannot hear anything that's going on outside of this room. However, you do have a little panel, like almost like a hatch in this room. And it happens to be facing a really big orchestra pit and the orchestra is playing. And you know this because there's a light in the room that lights up when the orchestra is playing, but you can't hear anything because the room's soundproofed. However, next to the panel is a button. And if you press the button, the panel opens up, but only for a split second. Next to the panel, you have a table, you got some paper, you got a pen, and your job is to press the button, listen for that split second, and then write down what you think is going on in the orchestra. You know, like you could write down everything from the specific instruments that you're hearing, the the relative volume of those instruments, any sort of harmonies you're hearing. Maybe you're even just trying to play name that tune. Now, let's say there are some other rules in place, too. If you push the button, you are not allowed to push it again until five seconds have passed. So every five seconds, you get another instant of sound as the panel opens and closes. This is that little snapshot of what's happening. It would be really hard to accurately describe the music because you wouldn't have a lot of information to go by, right? You would just have 
this instant of sound every five seconds. It might as well be noise at that point. But then let's say we start to decrease the delay where you get to have the panel open so that you're getting these instances of sound more close together. As that gets closer and closer, it'll start to sound more like uninterrupted music. Uh, maybe we even rig up the button. We tape down the button so it's always pressed down. And the panel still has to open and close, but it can open immediately after it shuts. So it's effectively a shutter. At a fast enough rate, you wouldn't necessarily even notice the shutter's effect on the music. To you, it would sound unbroken if it were fast enough. And then you could accurately describe the music. You could write down, you know, depending on how quickly you can write, you could write down a really accurate explanation of what is going on with the music. Or maybe you're just identifying what piece is playing. But, uh, you know, in this case, if you've got that shutter going at a high enough rate, it's almost like you're not in a soundproof room at all. Well, this kind of is how digital recording works. So rather than preserving an unbroken signal, the digital process breaks up a signal into discrete units. It has to because digital, when we get down to it, we're talking about binary data, zeros and ones. You cannot use zeros and ones to uh, to to do anything other than talk about discrete units. It can't be a continuous thing. Now, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, there are a lot of quantifiable elements we can look at when it comes to sound. We can describe how loud it is or what frequency or pitch it is. We can describe the timbre or quality of the sound, that that kind of gets us into areas that are a little less concrete, at least in human language. And digital equipment, like computers, are pretty good at handling things that are discrete and quantifiable. This is the realm of computers. And remember, ultimately, computers are relying on those zeros and ones to describe everything. Just to be clear, to get to this point, we would need to use an analog to digital converter. But I'm actually going to circle round back to that later on. For now, we're just going to focus on the basics of digital recording, because understanding that makes the whole, you know, ADC and DAC stuff way more easy to understand. So the way digital recording systems work is that they take snapshots of a continuous wave. They are measuring precisely all the elements at that moment in time of the wave and it, or signal. Signal is probably a better word than wave. Really, we're talking about the electric signal generated as you're using a transducer to pick up sound from, you know, wherever. So in this way, they are like that panel in that soundproofed room. If the sample rate is too low, if you are not sampling the signal frequently enough, then you do not get an accurate representation of that original signal. You know, you're, you're having to make a lot of guesses of what's happening between each snapshot. Just like if you had a camera and you were taking pictures of a fast moving, you know, scenario in front of you. If the rate of which you're taking pictures is pretty slow, you got to make a lot of interpretation of what happened between picture one and picture two and picture two and picture three. Same thing with these digital recording systems. If you were to try and play a recording like that back, it would not sound very good because it would not be a good representation of the original signal. So you need a really fast sample rate to get an accurate representation of what was really happening. This is the major difference between analog and digital. Analog is continuous and unbroken. 
digital is discrete. But if you are using a very fast sample rate, you can create a digital record of a continuous signal that to human ears appears to be continuous itself. Again, if that shutter is opening and closing fast enough, it's almost like it's not even there. Now let's imagine that we've got two graphs that are showing the same uh, signal, right? And on the left side, we've got the analog signal represented. And on the right side, we've got the digital signal. Now, let's say at first glance, these two are identical. They both look like, you know, a typical sine wave. But then you zoom into the analog representation. But no matter how, how far you zoom in, you see it's just a continuous, unbroken line that's representing this, this sine wave. Now, let's say we take the digital one and we zoom way in. Well, as we zoom way in we, and we get closer, we see that rather than being continuous, it's actually a series of discrete moments, like almost like steps or stairs. That's kind of what we're talking about here. The question is, how many stairs do we use? Like, what's the resolution that we're using here? Uh, you can kind of think of it like megapixels in a picture. If you don't have a lot of megapixels, then you might see some blockiness in a photo. Uh, once you get to a certain density, depending on, you know, the size of the image you're looking at, like if you're looking at it on the side of a building, you're going to need a lot of megapixels so it doesn't look blocky. But depending on that, uh, it may look really smooth. Same sort of thing with sound. Now, if you've ever played with digital audio recorders, you've probably seen something labeled sample rate or project rate. This refers to the number of samples that the recording is taking every second. And to record a sound, that sample rate has to be fast enough to take two samples within one wavelength of every sound that's appearing in that in that recording. And remember, I said that a sound's wavelength is inversely proportional or has an inverse proportional relationship to the sound's frequency. So the higher frequency sounds have shorter wavelengths, and you do need two samples per wavelength to capture the data necessary to have a recording of that sound. If the wavelength is too small, then your sample rate will not be sufficient to get a full, you know, the full information about that sound wave. You won't be able to record it, at least not accurately. So remember, I said the typical range of human hearing is between 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz or 20,000 hertz. That's 20,000 cycles per second. And you have to gather two samples per wavelength or, or cycle. So that means you need a sampling rate of at least 40,000 times per second or 40 kilohertz to be able to sample everything that's within the typical human hearing range. Well, a basic sample rate that a lot of people will use for various recording projects is 44.1 kilohertz. Uh, and then they go up from there. In fact, we use 48 kilohertz when we're recording our episodes. I'm using 48 kilohertz right now. I had to check because I did accidentally do 44.1 for an episode a few weeks back. And Tari needed to gently remind me that I need to fix that. Uh, so it's at 48 kilohertz. So I also mentioned that we're quantifying all those elements about the sound. We want as accurate a representation of the original sound as possible. That means we're not just concerned with the number of snapshots that we're taking every second. We're also concerned with the quality of each of those snapshots. If we were using a literal camera to take pictures, we would want stuff like the lighting and the lens to be perfect so that every single photo we got was an accurate representation of what we were seeing when we were there. 
Well, with digital recording, you know, we're not talking about lights and cameras. We're talking about how much data we're using to describe the original signal. This is called bit depth. Bit depth refers to how many potential values we can assign to a a signal in an effort to describe it. The more potential values we can use, the more accurately we can describe the signal. So let's do another analogy. All right, let's say that we're in a room. It's you and your best friend. Your best friend's all the way out across the other side of the room. And I hand you a picture. Your job is to describe that picture to your best friend who's across the room. Your best friend cannot see the picture. They can only hear your description. Their job is to try and recreate the picture, to draw it as you describe it. However, I give you some more restrictions. I say, you can only use five adjectives. Uh, You can only use five sentences, and they have to be simple sentences. They can't be compound or complex or anything. Five simple short sentences with a maximum of five adjectives to describe that picture. Well, chances are your best friend would draw something that's kind of similar to the picture I gave you, but it wouldn't be an accurate copy of it, right? You might be like, okay, I can see where you got that based upon the description. But let's say we repeat this task, and each time we repeat it, I give you a little more freedom in how you can describe the picture you're looking at to your friend. So you get to use more adjectives, you get to use more complex sentences, And each time you're given a larger set of potential values that you can express to your best friend. Well, that's kind of like bit depth. If you're using 16-bit bit depth, that means you're using 16 bits to determine the range of values that can describe the signal. So a bit is either a zero or a one. With 16 bits, you can represent up to 65,536 values. However, let's say you were to go to 32-bit. So 16 to 32, you would think, oh, you could do twice as many. That's not that's not the case with 32 bit depth. You wouldn't be talking about twice as many as 16 bit with 32 bits. You would be able to describe up to four billion two hundred ninety four million nine hundred sixty seven thousand two hundred ninety six values. So the greater the bit depth, the more accurately you can describe something essentially. Uh, So it's both the sample rate and bit depth together that can allow a digital system to create a digital recording that represents that continuous signal it was sampling. Again, the digital recording is not continuous. If we zoomed way in, we would see it's a bunch of these little steps that are all linked together. But if the sample rate is high enough and the bit depth is great enough, we can reach a point where the human ear really can't discern the difference. Does this mean? At lower settings, we would actually notice a difference. If you go low enough, yeah. But really, most of the time, even 16-bit is sufficient for just plain old recording and playback. However, if you want to work on a project, let's say you're an editor and you're, you're trying to edit together music files or audio files, larger bit depth gives you much more space to work in without introducing stuff like distortion. This is called headroom. And if you remember the character Max Headroom, that name is a pun on this very sort of thing. Technically, at the lower rates, you get deviations from the true sound. You're essentially inserting errors into the digital file. Uh, As you increase sample rate and bit depth, you can decrease those errors until you reach a point where any errors that exist are, are impossible to detect, at least with our natural 
equipment. Maybe you could detect them if you had super sensitive electronic equipment to indicate it, but it wouldn't be something that would be necessarily perceptible to human ears. One other interesting thing or a couple of interesting things that I should mention with sample rates. Uh, So I said like your sample rate has to be fast enough to capture two points of data along the wavelength of every sound. And for most of us, that hearing range caps out at 20 kilohertz. That might lead you to the question, well, why would you bother to go higher than 40 kilohertz? Now, if 20 kilohertz is the limit of human hearing, typical human hearing, why go to 44.1? Well, there are some other things that we need to think about that play a factor in this. One of those are harmonics. Uh, Now, harmonics are way too complicated for me to really fully get into in this episode, but harmonics can actually exist above the range of human hearing and yet still shape how we experience a sound. You can almost think of it as the harmonics are sculpting the sounds we hear. So even harmonics that are outside of our hearing range might be affecting the sounds we still can hear. So we're not hearing the harmonics directly. We're rather experiencing how they are affecting the rest of the stuff we can perceive, if that makes sense. Well, if you're sampling at a rate that's too low to capture those harmonics, those harmonics are not going to be in the digital recording. So they won't be in the playback. When you listen to it, you lose that sound. So when you do listen back, you're going to be losing those effects and you're not going to experience the sound as you would had you been in the place when it was being recorded. Also, one thing that we can do with recordings is we can change the pitch when we record stuff. You know, like if you have a digital recording, you can digitally change the pitch. In fact, Tari, if you would like to digitally alter the pitch of my voice, maybe increase the pitch so that I get that kind of chipmunk sound to it. That's, you know, boosting the frequency up. Or maybe bringing that frequency way down and giving me that deep bass booming voice that I know I'll never have and I'll never be able to really play like a baritone in a musical. Feel free to do it. The world is your plaything. So... You could record audio with a sample rate of 44.1 kilohertz. Then on playback, maybe you decide you want to pitch everything down. Well, you'll hit a ceiling of the sounds that you'll have in that recording once you get to 22 kilohertz or so. So if there were sounds that were above 22 kilohertz, you're not really going to be able to hear them with the pitched down recording. Remember, that pitched down recording will bring stuff that is outside human hearing into the range of human hearing because you pitched it down. But if your sample rate is too slow, too low, in other words, you won't have captured those higher pitches. So let's say that you're recording something that's in a very, very high frequency, like beyond the range of human hearing, but then you want to do a pitch adjustment so that people can actually hear a sound, even though it you know, normally they wouldn't be able to hear it at all because it would be outside their range. Maybe you're doing like a nature documentary and there's a critter that makes sounds that typically we cannot hear, but by pitching it down, you could say, this is what it sounds like once we reduce the pitch. Well, you have to have a sample rate that's high enough so that you capture the that range of sound in the first place, right? So that's one reason why you might want a very high sample rate. Uh, I just thought that was neat. All right, we need to take another break. 
When we come back, we'll talk about the process we need to follow in order to go from analog to digital and back again. It's going to be a lot of us talking about some of the stuff we just chatted about. And we'll also talk about audio files a little bit. But first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Now, before I dive into the converters part, I should add there are some outliers, right? There are digital microphones, for example. Now, there are some digital microphones that are analog at the front end. So in other words, they still have the diaphragm. They still have the electromagnet. They're still generating an electric current with varying voltage. 
but then they'll have an analog to digital converter built into the microphone itself. So you have an ADC and it's right there in the device. And then you have the signal go to other elements of your, you know, recording studio. There are other digital microphones that use the pressure waves to move elements that immediately convert into digital data. Getting into that is pretty complicated. They are not super common. It's not like that's the type of microphone that everyone is using. Um, They're important, but you could argue that it's a microphone and ADC all in one because you're taking audio, which is an analog, you know, signal, and you're converting it immediately into binary uh, or digital information. But we're really going to talk about analog to digital and digital to analog, which is what most equipment is dealing with when we're we're speaking about this kind of stuff. We're not going to worry about stuff that's native digital because it's just it's not that common. Um, like digital speakers <laughs> are a different thing altogether as well. And um, yeah, we're just going to wipe those out. We're going to look at what most people use, which is that, you know, your typical stereo system or your typical audio recording setup. So again, typically the end equipment that you use to either record or listen to audio, the stuff at the very ends of that chain are typically analog in nature. Again, there are outliers, but for the vast majority of cases, we're talking about an analog device that generates an analog signal or plays back an analog signal. So we take an analog phenomena, the pressure waves that make up sound, we feed that through a transducer to create a different but still analog signal, in this case, an electric current with variable voltage. But now we get to a point where we say, all right, we want to transform that into a digital file that quantifies this signal. When we play the digital file back, that signal ultimately needs to go through some kind of loudspeaker for us to hear it. Uh, maybe that loudspeaker's in our headphones. Maybe it's a stereo system. Maybe it's you know the speaker on your smartphone. Uh, maybe it's a sound system in a stadium. But we need a way to transform that digital information, all those zeros and ones, into an electric signal with variable voltage. And we probably have to amplify that signal so that it's strong enough to drive whatever speakers we're using to create the sound, which again, we experience as an analog phenomena. Now, if there were some way that we could interface directly with machines and have those digital signals interact with our brains, maybe we wouldn't need to do this kind of transformation. But as it stands, we do have to do this. And this is where converters come into play. The converters could be standalone devices, or frequently they're worked into the design of various pieces of equipment. So for example, a USB microphone. If you have one of those that you plug into your computer, like I'm using one right now to record this, they have that ADC converter built into them. And that I'm being repetitive because that's analog to digital converter. And then I said ADC converter. It's like saying ATM machine. Anyway, the microphone still acts just as a traditional analog mic on that end, but then the electric signal has to go through a converter, converts into a digital signal, and that's what transmits through the USB cable to, you know, whatever you've got it hooked up to. Like in my case, it's my work laptop. Now, here's the thing. There's more than one way to convert an analog signal into a digital one. 
All of these ways get pretty technical. Talking about the way it's sampled, the way it ends up taking these measurements of the signal. Uh, So, for example, with analog to digital converters or ADCs, there are several popular methodologies. But generally speaking, they all do the same thing on a big picture scale. They all sample a signal. This is the snapshots that I was talking about earlier. They, They look at a signal at a specific frequency, like a specific, they look at the signal a specific number of times every second. And they quantify the signal. They measure the signal, which determines the resolution that you get of the signal. Obviously, if you want high quality sound, you need both a good sample rate and a good resolution, which we can think of as, you know, the accuracy in capturing the nature of that signal. You can think of it as an ADC is measuring the electric current many, many times per second and quantifies that measurement as digital data. And it's not just like how important is this signal at this specific moment in time, but also how important are the changes in that signal over greater lengths of time. Now, the bit depth we can think of is how detailed these measurements can be. So the number of measurements and the detail we get together determine the quality of the digital signal compared to the original analog signal. And again, we're talking about digitally describing an electric current at this point. We're not talking about describing the sound necessarily. We're describing the electric current that the transducer created after the sound went through the transducer. Now, if the sample rate of an ADC is too low, you get what's called aliasing. Now, this means that the digital signal will differ greatly from the original signal. And that means that you're not going to have a good representation of what was originally creating that signal in the first place. In this case, whatever the sound was. Uh, So that that's what aliasing means in this context. Now, a a DAC or DAC is a digital to audio converter, and it's basically the same thing we just talked about, but in reverse. The DAC takes digital information, which essentially is describing an analog signal an electric current of variable voltage, then it produces that analog signal. The way it does, again, depends upon the type of DAC. Just as ADCs have different methodologies, so do DACs. Uh, I might do an episode that goes into more detail, like I mentioned at the top of this episode, but honestly, once you really start diving in there, it gets incredibly technical very quickly. Generally speaking, we're talking about sophisticated circuit boards that are designed to convert digital to analog or vice versa, to switch between the data made up of zeros and ones and a continuous electric signal. And again, if there's interest, I'll go into more about how that works, but believe me, it gets really complicated. And without visual aids, it's really hard to kind of get it across. Anyway, Now let's talk about audiophiles. Also, I should mention, there's a ton of stuff I did not talk about, right? I didn't talk about multiplexing or anything like that. Uh, So there is a lot more to it than just the the general information I'm giving. Anyway, audiophiles. So back in the day when CDs were fairly new, uh, there were audiophiles who just despised digital media. The process of converting an analog signal into a digital file and then back again to analog Well, that represented a potential loss in quality, right? The playback experience might not be as vibrant. 
Audiophiles typically use words like warm or full to describe sound. These are words that are hard to quantify. They are experiential, I guess. And they would lament that digitization removed some of those elements from recordings. The thing is, depending upon how you're digitally sampling a signal, some of that could be actually happening. You could be losing harmonics. And this isn't even touching on the issue that you start getting if you're if you're doing stuff like compression, uh, file compression in this sense. I'll talk about audio compression in a bit. But file compression can involve using what are called lossy formats. A lossy format discards part of a digital file that describes a signal. And typically the way it does this is that the encoding process is getting rid of information that it deems as being irrelevant. So let me explain that last bit. I did a full series of episodes about MP3s that goes into this into far more detail, but I'll give a down and dirty version for this episode. So the MP3 method of compressing a file takes a psychoacoustic approach in part when figuring out how to make an audio file size smaller because raw audio files can be huge. If you're really using a, a very high sample rate and a big bit depth during your recording process, you're generating enormous files, right? Because the, the system is taking data many, many, many times, many thousands of times every second and using an enormous amount of information to try and describe that signal each time, every single snapshot. That's a lot of information. And that isn't really convenient if you want to store that file on like an old MP3 player. You know, if you remember those where you had to, like in the old, old days, you had to connect them physically to your computer. You would download or rip music and you would then send that music file to your device. These devices had very limited storage space on them. So you couldn't really hold a lot of raw audio. Like a single file might end up taking up the entire storage on your MP3 player. And maybe you really like Journeys Don't Stop Believing, but you might want some other songs on there too. This is also more complicated if you want to do something like stream music. You don't want to have enormous files that would require like a gigabit internet connection in order to be able to stream it. So you have to have a way to compress files down to sizes that are easier to handle. Well, the way the MP3 algorithm does this is that once you set some general parameters, like you decide how compressed you want to make this file, essentially you're telling the MP3 algorithm how hard it needs to go when it's starting to cut stuff. Well, then the algorithm begins to toss out data that at least in theory should not affect your experience when you listen back to the audio playback. So for example, let's say you've got a sound file and in that sound file, you have a very soft sound that immediately follows a very loud sound. So loud sound happens, soft sound happens immediately after that. Well, you wouldn't actually hear that really soft sound, and that's just because of how our ears work. The loud sound effectively masks the softer one, so it's almost like the soft one didn't exist at all. Well, if it's like the soft one didn't exist, then there's no reason to keep it, right? If you couldn't hear it anyway, there's no reason that that should be in the, the file, right? So the algorithm effectively through analyzing this data says, ah, oh, that doesn't need to be in there. No one would hear it. So it tosses the data out. That's why it's a lossy 
file format. The same goes for frequencies that would be outside the range of human hearing. The logic is, well, you can't hear something that's at 22 kilohertz, so we're just going to get rid of anything that's occurring at that frequency because there's no reason to keep it. However, depending on how much you want to compress that file, those cuts can really start to affect the quality of the playback audio when you put it back through a, you know, a decoder and you get the audio on the other end. Uh, by the way, as I mentioned, file compression is not the same thing as audio compression. Uh, I'll explain what I mean by that, but first let's take one last break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. 
Okay, before the break, I said that audio compression and file compression are two different things. It does get confusing, and I myself have been guilty of kind of interchanging the words or not clarifying enough while talking about compression. And uh, thus, I have been guilty of confusing it even more. So my apologies for that, but let's get to it. Audio compression refers to reducing the dynamic range of volume in a recording. Uh, So in other words, it's about reducing the volume distance between the softest sounds and the loudest sounds. Now, this can be really important for certain types of recording. I'll give you an example that I frequently run into that drives me nuts. And this happens a lot with like streaming media for me. So movies and television. Have you ever watched like an action movie where you can barely hear some of the dialogue, especially if people are speaking in like low voices and, you know, they're trying to be secretive or whatever. And then, so you turn the volume up so that you can hear what people are saying. But then the next time something explodes, you're worried that you've just destroyed all your speakers, or maybe you've caused yourself permanent hearing damage. This happens to me all the time where the softest sounds and the loudest sounds are so far apart that there's no comfortable volume I can select where I can hear everything and not feel like one, I'm missing out on some dialogue or two, my neighbors are going to come over and complain that I've got my volume turned up too loud. So compression in a case like that can narrow the gap between the softest parts and the loudest parts so that you can find that kind of comfortable volume where you can hear everything. However, going overboard with audio compression will reduce the dynamic range in a recorded piece of audio. And if you do that too much, it can make the audio sound flat and uninteresting where everything is just coming out at exactly the same volume. If there's no real volume range, then your ears just kind of get tired of hearing everything played back at that same level. Uh, Some digital recordings really suffered from this kind of processing. Like there was an era of music where audiophiles in particular were really complaining that everything that was being laid down had so much compression in it that there was no real dynamic range in audio. And it just meant that the music wasn't as interesting. Like there wasn't, there wasn't enough variation and it makes music kind of boring. Uh, It wouldn't matter if you had an analog pressing of a digital recording session because analog does not magically fix the problems of the recording process. So if you're recording digitally and then you make a vinyl record pressing of that digital recording, I mean, all that processing you did on the digital side, that's still going to be part of what ends up being recorded on the vinyl. It's, it's not like vinyl suddenly cures all sins of digital. So even if you were to, to go with analog audio media, you would still have the same problems that were introduced in the digital processing. Now, this does not mean that all digital to audio is inherently flawed. Even if we just look at the analog chain, we have to acknowledge that the process of recording and playback means, you know, you're taking pressure waves of the original sound, you pass them through a system that converts those pressure waves into an analog electric signal, and then you got to reverse that process during playback. And stuff can happen along that pathway that could affect either the recording process or the playback process or both. So in other words, analog does not necessarily mean better 
because flaws can exist in the analog approach just as they can with the digital approach. And there are other elements as well, such as low-level noise. Analog systems can introduce a low-level noise into a signal. Uh, Digital avoids that. Now, that does not mean that digital is better, mind you, because there are other ways to reduce and eliminate noise in analog systems, and digital can introduce other artifacts that didn't exist in the original signal, and then that comes across as, like, errors in your playback. Like, you might hear some weird blip noise and think, what the heck was that? And it wasn't necessarily present in the original recording session, but was introduced as a digital artifact. This is just another example of how one format is not necessarily superior to the other. It depends on way too many other factors. They're just different. And honestly, I'm fairly confident that if you were to do a double blind test, and just in case you're unfamiliar with that term, double blind is a type of scientific test where neither the subject that's going through the test nor the person who is in charge of administering the test knows which version anyone is getting. So if you have a control group, the person administering the test doesn't know if that's a control group or if it's an actual test group that they're testing at any given time. That way, the person administering the test does not give bias to the person who's experiencing the test. The thought is, if I know as an administrator, then I might give a tell to the test subject, right? So let's say it's a double-blind test, and the audio files are going into a room, and they're going to experience the same piece of audio recording, but uh, it's over different systems. So like some of the pieces of the same stretch of audio are analog sources. Some of them are digital sources. They might even include different like systems, like premium systems, like super, super high-end systems that cost maybe upwards of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And maybe just on some that are really good systems, like, you know, they're still expensive. Maybe it's a few thousand dollars, but they're not, you know, monumentally expensive. My bet is that most audiophiles would have trouble picking out which ones are analog systems versus digital systems, unless there's some giveaway. Like if you hear the scratch of a needle hitting record, then that's kind of a dead giveaway. But let's say, you know, you're you're talking about like the highest of high ends. I don't think they would be able to tell the difference very easily. And that's because our approach to digital processing has become sophisticated enough that to our human ears, it's pretty close to an analog signal. And that, you know, also I want to mention the returns on those high end audio equipment, like the differences that you start to see when you're really hitting that upper echelon of audio equipment. Some of those returns are so minor that after you reach a certain point, they are largely meaningless. Like, like as far as perception goes, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Uh, And for people like me, people who have had some hearing loss, it matters even less than that. Right. Because like for me, like, it you could almost say it's like I have an unsophisticated palate. <laughs> like you could serve me an amazing meal, but I'm not likely to notice it being any better than, you know, a cheeseburger. But again, this is my hypothesis. I I I believe this is probably true. It is entirely possible, and I admit this, 
that if I actually were to conduct this kind of study, I might find that I'm totally wrong, that the audio files are like, no, that is clearly the premium. And maybe the differences are subtle, but maybe they're detectable, right? It could be that I'm wrong about that. Uh, I just think that there gets to be a point where people start to buy into a philosophy, especially with audio files, that isn't necessarily supportable by you know, quantifiable evidence. It becomes so subjective that once you remove the subjective element, like you remove the ability for them to know whether or not they're listening to their preferred setup, that it starts to disappear. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't think I am. <laughs> but that's the overview of analog and digital and why you have to have the converters. As I said, to get into specifics would take more time, you know, talking about Delta Sigma processing and that kind of stuff. But if you want it, let me know and I will try and put that episode together. It will just be <laughs> far more niche oriented than even this one was. But it is a fascinating subject. Like there's some really cool technology that goes into making this all work. And the fact that that technology does work and that it has become so sophisticated is why I feel pretty confident in saying that with a sufficiently good system, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But that's it for this episode. If you would like me to cover any kind of topic, whatever it might be in the tech world, let me know. The best way to get in touch is on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw. And I greatly appreciate it. I'm getting some wonderful suggestions. It really makes my job easier because I know exactly what people want to hear. Um, so yeah, reach out and let me know what you think. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.